you have your Bible uh, with you, go ahead and grab it. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 46. That's where we're we're going to be picking it up here together this morning. We're in Genesis 46. We're sort of in the... uh, we're more than sort of. We are in the home stretch here of Genesis. Somebody asked me very gently before the service how many more sermons there are in the book of Genesis. And uh, we're looking at five. All right, five more. That's the, that's the number, the golden number. We're, we're at five more and we'll be, we'll be done in this book of Genesis. It has been a long, I mean, I, I will admit this, it has been a long journey. Uh, there's been some real tough stretches in the midst of Genesis 2, but we're, we're getting there. And this morning we're in Genesis 46. And really here, we're just focusing on the first seven verses in Genesis 46. So I'd invite you now to stand with me as we look together at the word of the Lord here in Genesis chapter 46, starting there in verse 1. <clears throat> so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us, that you are here even now, present with us by your Holy Spirit. You have gathered here together with the people in this church. You are gathered with our brothers and sisters in local churches all over this world. And so it's in gratitude and expectation that we come to you asking for you to speak to us this morning, for you to give us your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Way back in uh, Genesis 12, which was, it was actually a really long time ago at this point, back when we were first being introduced to Abraham. If you, if you're, if you remember at all, Genesis 12 is where we really first meet Abraham and, and we're introduced to this idea of the people of God. That's, that's kind of a new idea, this idea of God's covenant people. And, and what we saw there, we saw this man being called out from everything that was familiar to him. He was called out. He was, he was really sent out from, from what was comfortable. He was called out from what was familiar, from all, of, from all that he had known, from everything that was safe, everything that was secure. 
And God said to him, here's what God said. He said, go from your country and your kindred. So go from the place where you are. Go from the people who you belong to. Go from your kindred and your father's house to the, here's where he told him to go. To the land that I will send you. And then God made promises to him. He promised to make him into a great nation. He promised to, uh, that he would make his name great. He promised to bless him and to bless those who bless him. And, and what it says in Genesis 12, 4, is that Abram went, he was Abram at the time, went as the Lord had told him. He left everything, everything he had ever known, everything that he had ever known, everything that was familiar to follow after the calling of God. He left it all to walk in faith as God led him in this life. And then in Genesis 15, God came and formally made a covenant with Abraham. The closest thing to that that we see in our lives is a, is a marriage, a, a Christian wedding where a husband and a wife are covenanted together, where they make these solemn vows. God came, God came and made solemn vows to Abraham. You might remember that scene where God came to Abraham, right? And God brought him outside. It was at night. And he told him, he told him to look to heaven and number the stars if you are able to to number them. And we told the kids that we were like, do this with your parents, right? Go outside tonight and see if you can count the stars. And all the parents were like, seriously, man? Because that was when it got dark a lot later. (laughs) And so people had to stay up late to go out and number the stars with their kids. And of course, we know this is an impossible task. We know that even with all of our technological advancements today, we know that we cannot actually number the stars, It's impossible to measure what's immeasurable, to take inventory of what is infinite. And then he said to him, this is what God said to Abraham, look at the stars and number them if you're able. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And then God, all right, at this point, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch came and promised, came and covenanted with Abraham saying this, to your offspring, please, please don't miss this, to your offspring, I give this land. Now, I know we don't think much about land in our day, but this is what God promised. He says, I will give you this land from the river of, don't miss this, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. It's not just land in general, but a specific Land. He marked it out with these rivers. He said, this is the land I will give to you and your offspring. Now, fast forward to Jacob. Israel, right here in chapter 46. A lot of time has passed, a lot of ups and a lot, a lot of downs in, in this season from Genesis 15 now to 46. But they, Jacob and his family, they are living in that land that God had promised to Abraham. But now, but now Jacob, right? Much like his grandfather is being called out of the land. He's being sent out of that land of promise, being called out of the familiar. Jacob is being called out of what is comfortable, out of what is secure, out of what is safe there in his territory. He's being called out from the land of his fathers, out of the land of promise, and into the heart of Egypt. 
And look at verse 1 there with me. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, Beersheba is on the way to Egypt. It's on the natural, logical pathway from, the, from Canaan to Egypt, right? It's, it's the way he's supposed to go. It's been an important place in the life of the patriarchs up until this point. It's been a liturgical site, a liturgical site, meaning that it's been a place of, of public gathered worship for both Abraham and Isaac. You might remember that, right? In chapter 21, in fact, I'd love for you to turn to, and we don't do this a whole lot, but I'd love for you to turn to Genesis 21 with me uh, real quick. I'd love for you to see this. Genesis 21, verse 33, is not, is not very far, just a few pages probably to your left. Abraham was there, <clears throat> and what we're told was that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there, don't miss this, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That's Genesis 21, all right, that he, that he Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. A tamarisk tree is a, basically a big old shrubby tree that they love to have out in deserts because they provide shade. They're a good source of water. <clears throat> he plants a tamarisk tree there and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So it's a place of worship for Abraham. That's what Beersheba is. It's a place of reverence, even what we might call a a sacred place in the life of Abraham and thus in the life of God's people. Now turn over, here we go again. Now turn over to Genesis 26 with me. I want you to see this. It's just a, now it's just a couple of pages to the right, Genesis 26. And there in 26, 33, we don't see Abraham. We see Isaac, his son. This is Abraham's son. This is Jacob's dad. And it says this, here's what it says in 26, 23. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So look at 25. So he built an altar there and did what? Called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So here, here's what we see. You can, look, you can look up now. It's that at Beersheba, at this place, and I hope you caught this, both Abraham and Isaac called on the name of the Lord. They called on the name of the Lord. One consecrated it by planting a tree. The other consecrated it by building an altar. But both of them called on the name of the Lord. They prayed. That's what that means. That in that place, Beersheba, it's a place of prayer. It's this idea that we saw way back, all the way back in Genesis 4. If you remember Genesis 4, after sin has entered into the world, sin has entered into the world, and then Cain takes his brother Abel out into the field and he murders him. We remember that, right? That's a dark moment in human history right there. He kills him and then Eve gives birth to Seth, and it says this, here's what it says, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And then at that time, people 
began to call upon the name of the Lord. Gary Millar said that to call on the name of Yahweh, that's the Lord, to call on the name of Yahweh in Genesis is to respond to God's promise-making initiative by asking Him to act to fulfill His promises. It's coming to God. Calling on the name of the Lord is coming to God in humility and reverence and worship, asking God to do what God has promised to do. It is one of the most profound. It is one of the most absolute profound and powerful truths about the God of the Bible is that he's a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He does not have to do that. He chooses to do that. He is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And what we see here in Genesis 46, now if you want to you go back to 46, is that Jacob, that Jacob is seeking God at Beersheba. He's coming there to Worship. That's the human side of what's happening here in Genesis 46. That, that Jacob is coming there to worship. And it's critical that we see it. it it's, it's what we do. This is what Jacob's doing in 46. It's exactly what we do right here every single week as we're gathered together, whether in person or virtually. We are gathered together for corporate gathered Worship. That is our part in it. That is the human side of it. We move with intentionality toward God in worship. That's the human side, but there's more at work here than just that, right? Surely there is more to this than just what we bring to the table. Look at verse 2. It says there in verse 2, and God did what? Spoke to Israel. Okay, so that's not the human side of it. That's the divine side. That is the divine side of corporate worship. The human side is we come to God. That is the step that we take. Every single person here this morning either got on your bike, walked down the road, or more than likely drove in a car to get here. You got up, got dressed, made an intentional, dedicated decision to come to this place. If you're sitting at home, you decided to You might still be in your PJs or whatever, but you decided to get on the couch, turn on the TV, and watch online or watch on your phone or whatever you're doing. We made an intentional move to do this. That is our step in it. But the divine side is that in his love and in his grace and and in his mercy, what, what does God do? We see it right there, that God moves toward us. That God moved toward Jacob. We saw it in Genesis 21 with Abraham. We saw it in Genesis 26 with Isaac. And we see it here with Jacob. And we have this opportunity, this very same Beersheba type opportunity every single time we gather. It's the promise, okay, throughout every age to every generation of his people to your, she just sang it to your families and your children and their children and their children. It's the promise of his presence. And I am sorry, but we take that. I'm not sorry. I apologize. I rescind the I'm sorry. I want to be honest and vulnerable. We take that for granted. That God promises to be with us. 
And so even in this season of famine, don't forget that. Jacob's in a season of famine right now. This season of exile from the land of promise. Even when everything is a mess, he says to Jacob, look at that. Don't, don't, don't look at me for a second. Look at what he says. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you a great nation. Now, from the human side, from the human side, going to Egypt is ridiculously risky. From the human side, going to Egypt is a mistake. If your son-in-law at this time, living in the land of Canaan, comes to you and says, hey, father-in-law, I'm taking your daughter, I'm taking my kids, we're moving to Egypt, you say, no, you're not. That's the immediate response. That's not happening. That is crazy talk. We would never do this. Going to Egypt is dangerous from any human perspective. And even in his life, listen, Jacob has proven over and over again to be less than trustworthy, right? He's proven his ability to mess things up. He's proven himself to be a fearful person in the past. He's like the hymn, right? He's prone to wander. He's prone to fear. Jacob's sort of the scaredy cat of the book of Genesis. But here, God comes to him and says in verse 3, did you catch that? What does he say? Do not be afraid. So this is, <laughs> this is sort of like God coming and telling water not to be wet. This is who Jacob is. Jacob is a scaredy cat. He's coming and saying, do not be afraid. It's like telling ice not to be cold, right? It's a, God's coming and telling Jacob to act completely contrary to his natural disposition. And God does this from time to time. In some ways, in some ways, in fact, this is the center of the entire story of the Bible. It's God coming to his fallen and broken creation and telling it that in spite all of its fallen nature, here's what God tells it, don't be that way anymore. Just think about the way, just think about Jesus in the Gospels. Our Bible reading plan right now, if you're still up there, I know we're like three weeks into this year, so you're probably behind already. It's okay, although I don't want to tell you to just slack off. Like, get, catch up. It's like five minutes a day, right? You've probably had 15 minutes this week to catch up on a couple of days you're behind. But anyway, that's just, that's not a drive-by guilting at all. That's just... That's just real reality, right? So, but think about just this week in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've been doing your reading, in Mark 1, here's, where, here's God coming into the world and telling the world not to be the way it is. Here it is, Mark 1, he comes to the man with leprosy. Anybody remember leprosy? You heard about that when you were a kid. I remember, I'll still remember the first time the, the pastor in my church when I was a kid talked about leprosy and he talked about people's fingers falling off. And I, that's all I could think about for the rest of the entire service was, I hope I don't get that, Right? Like, there's no mask for that junk, okay? If your hands and arms are falling off, that's game over. Nobody's ever going to want to be around you. And I just remember it. So if I've just planted that, if you're a child and I just planted that in your mind, I apologize. Um, but that's what it was. I mean, if you got leprosy, you had a death sentence on you. And more than that, nobody wanted to be around you. So if you were a leper, they cast you out because you were gross. I mean, that's really what it was. And what does Jesus tell this filthy man? Do you remember that from Mark? Mark 1, he tells the filthy man, be clean. 
to the guy whose fingers are falling off, to the guy who's ashy and disgusting and nobody wants to be near him, the guy who is filthy, Jesus says, don't be that, be clean. And then in Mark 2, remember Jesus walks into Capernaum and there's four guys there who bring this paralytic friend of theirs to see him. And they can't get even to him because the place is so crowded with people. Like they're, just, they're just all in there. It's a massive crowd, all right? The people in Capernaum are following zero COVID protocols, right? Just totally abandoning that whole thing. And so what do they do? They don't give up. These guys are determined to get their boy healed. And so they go up to the roof. They remove part of the roof and they lower old boy down. And we know he's not faking because there's no way he would have signed up for that. And what does Jesus tell the paralyzed man? What does Jesus say to the man who cannot walk? (laughs) Do you remember that? He says, he doesn't even tell him to walk. I love this. He says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. So not just walk, use all of you. Use your arms, use your legs, pick up your bed and go home. And and this is what Jesus does. This is what God does. He constantly comes to people and tells them to do things that in and of themselves are completely impossible. He comes and tells blind people to see. He comes and tells deaf ears to hear. He, he tells dead people to be alive. He tells cowards to fear not. And we should recognize that these are impossible tasks. We are meant to recognize that these acts of renewal and restoration are impossible apart from God. And it's the same with Jacob here in 46, who's being told, he's being told now to move in boldness and confidence rather than fear and doubt. He's being told to act impossibly out of his character. And here's how God can say this to Jacob. Here's how God can say, do not be afraid. Look at verse 4. God says to not be afraid because why? It's because I myself, God Myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. You see, it's not because Egypt is going to be some sort of paradise. He's not saying, don't be afraid, man. It's going to be better than you think. I mean, that's how we try to sell things. First day of school, bro, don't be afraid. The teacher's going to be nice, right? The kids are going to be friendly. The lunchroom will still be the same one you're used to. It's, it's what we say. We, we try to convince people not to be afraid based on the circumstances in which they're going to try, in which they're going to find themselves. We go, listen, the first day at this new job won't be bad. That guy's super nice. You'll get along with him. But God doesn't do that here at all, because Egypt is not going to be some sort of utopian place of peace and tranquility, right? That's not the promise. And we've said this here before, but this is why you'll never hear a gospel of health, wealth, and and happiness at Rivercrest. It's because it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Listen, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt is basically going to serve as the geographical incubator for the multiplication of the people of God, but life is going to be exceedingly difficult there. It's going to be painful. So he doesn't say, listen, man, it's going to be beautiful. They got this great river there. They call it the Nile. It's going to be amazing. He doesn't say any of that. He says what? What's the promise? It's the promise of God's presence. It's that I am going with you. It's that our heavenly father 
is going with us. And, and I'll just be straight with you. We can't hear this enough. We can't hear this enough because in the mess of our life, in our, in our self-pity, in our fear, in our pain, in our loss, in our suffering, in our grief, in our despair. It's not that we aren't supposed to feel those things. They are real and they are true. That is the, that is the result of life in a fallen world, that people get sick, that people die, that storms come, that waves come, that things come that we can't stop. We don't want them to happen, but they do happen. That's the reality of life in this. Those are real things. God brought us to those places. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the providence of God that nothing happens outside of his control. So wherever you are, it's because God put you there. Even the places that we don't understand and maybe especially the places that we don't understand. But the promise is not, is not even that we can make it through it, but that he's there with us in it. That's the promise for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's the promise for them in Genesis. It's the promise for the people of God today. That's what the author of Hebrews was so committed to making known in his time, making known in our hearts. He tells us in Hebrews 13 to be content with what we have. It's almost the opposite of what we see here in Genesis 46. In fact, in Genesis 46, it's a famine, right? It's hunger and they're in need. There's a broken relationship that they're trying to get back to. That's, that's why they're in motion. But in Hebrews 13, it's actually a warning against worldliness. In Hebrews 13, it's, it's where we're warned to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So listen, God's presence is there both in the famine and, and, and in the abundance. To keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Anybody struggling with that one? Anyone here struggle with contentment? No, just me, cool. Hebrews says to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, here's why, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is Jesus' words to his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of his presence for you and me today. I said he will be with us, not just when things around us are bad. Don't, 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 don't fall into that mentality. Not just because things around us are bad. God doesn't just promise, Jesus doesn't just promise to come around us when everything around us is bad. He comes and promises to be with us when we're bad, when we bring the badness with us, he promises to come and be near to us. He didn't go, oh man, I see that my perfect little angel has gotten himself into a storm and now I will come running to him. No, he sees when you're the devil side of you, when you're the screaming toddler who can't get his stuff together, he comes and puts his hand on your shoulder and says, I'm here with you, even when you wouldn't want to be near yourself. This is the promise of Jesus for us. Not just when we're outside of us. Not, not just when the stuff outside of us is bad. Not just when the stuff outside of us is dirty, messy. He comes to us when we are dirty, when we are messy. That's the whole point of the incarnation, 
That's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. It's not God tossing us a rope to to try to pull ourselves up out of the fray. That's not the idea. It's not him throwing you a line and hoping that you're smart enough to grab onto it and strong enough to pull yourself up. No, it's him coming and jumping into the fray with us. That's what the incarnation is. That's Jesus coming to earth. He's coming into our broken world. He's coming into our broken existence jumping into it and carrying us home. That's why D.A. Carson has said that those who draw really close to Jesus think of themselves first and foremost. They think of themselves first and foremost as those loved by him rather than as those who profess their love for him. That's a subtle but really critical distinction. You see the difference there? One is about what we do. One is about what we do. It's about our love. It's about our affection. It's about our commitment. It's about what we do. And like Jacob, like Jacob, man, we we mess up a lot. We're fickle. We're easily distracted people. Our faith is shaky. We are, we're unreliable at best, even in our own lives. So if it's all about our love, if it's all about our affection, it's all about how we cling to him, it'll never be enough because we're too weak and too frail. And so you see, the deeper walk with Christ is about his great love for us. His unrelenting, I'm going to borrow from Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible, his unrelenting, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's a love that says to us in that mess, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. It's Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not what? We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea. It's that when things fall apart, as they inevitably will in a crumbling and broken world, when the virus strikes, when the school closes down, when the job is lost, when the loved one passes, when the hearing fails, when the eyes dim, when the body gives out, through it all, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He's the constant. And what does God say? Even in the mess. Here's what God says at the end of Psalm 46. This is where God speaks to us. You know what he says? In the mess, when it's all going bad, you know what he says? He says, be still. Be still. Anybody good at being still? We're the most unstill culture that has ever existed on, in, in, in the history of humanity. We can't sit for five minutes without a phone or some distraction. Here's what God tells you in the midst of the distraction. Be still. And know what? Not just be still for the sake of being still. This isn't Zen Buddhism or something like this, right? He's not just telling you to be still and ohm it out or whatever. He's saying, be still and what? And know, and know that I am God. He's the constant. And so we can go now where God is calling us to go, right? We can follow where he is leading, knowing not that we have the strength, knowing not that we have the ability, but knowing that he is there with us. It took Jacob, can we just say this? It took Jacob a really, really long time to learn this. A depressingly long time to learn this truth. 
What I want to tell you is that this promise is there for you today. Like right now, as we're gathered here together, this promise is there for you today. That God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's here for us even now. The cool thing that would be, or the trendy thing would be for me now to turn this and say, so let's all do this together. Let's walk this path as a church. Let's take the hill. Let's conquer the land. Let's be bigger than this moment. Let's be bigger than this culture. Let's all go together. But you know what would happen if I did that? We might. We might get a bunch of people to start doing stuff. But it's an empty promise because I love you. And I hope you like me, but I'm unreliable at best. And so are you. And so the goodness of God to us is not just that we have one another, but that we actually have him. As we don't just walk together, though that's true, but in faith we walk with him. That's the beauty of the gospel for us. That Jesus comes to us when we are terrible, unlovable, Pathetic creatures, desperately in need. And he grabs hold of us. He takes us by the hand. And he says, you're mine. And it's not just empty words. It's proven by a life given for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not treat us as we deserve. That you don't treat us the way we have earned, but that you treat us with the love, with the mercy, with the grace that is shown to us in Jesus Christ at the cross. Help us this week to remember who we are in you. That it's not about our love, it's about yours. It's not about what we're capable of, but it's about what you are commanding. It's about your promises. It's about your purposes. God, in a world that is fiercely individualistic, I pray that you would give us the spirit of submission to your will for our lives that we might walk with you as you hold us and carry us. I pray that in Jesus' name.